Welcome, friends and colleagues. Today we will actually begin our study of the Hebrew Scripture. In the introduction, I spoke a bit about why the power and the impact of the Hebrew Bible in the world and how it is a completely unique type of a work authored with tremendous intelligence and foresight. We spoke about some of the techniques and mechanisms that it employs in its writing to make you, the reader, a part of the action and interpretation. In other words, drawing on the work of Eric Auerbach and many others, we have discussed that the structure and the presentation is designed to draw the reader and become a co-creator of the narrative. Now, what do I mean by that? So, let me give you an example. Let's say you are lost in the forest and you come across a castle. You walk in, no one is there, but you notice that the furniture is all very large and tall. You might at that point say, oh, there are giants living here. Or maybe you walk there and you see that it's kind of diminutive and small. You might say, maybe dwarves live here. In either case, you're interpreting and you're immediately putting yourself in relation to what you're seeing. If it's giants, well, maybe I should make my way out of here real quick. If it's dwarves, maybe I can linger and see what they are and what they have. Uh, what if you encounter both huge, large tables and chairs and utensils and tiny, small ones? Well, you might say, maybe both giants and dwarves live here, or maybe uh, there are different kinds of races of men that, uh, who live here, or maybe the, the giants have little children. In any case, you might then put that in relation to yourself and say, I might see if I can fit in. So this is the same thing that the Hebrew Bible does. It leaves lacunae, it presents to you uh, ongoing multiple narratives packed, sometimes in the same story, sometimes in different presentations of the same story, sometimes by repetition, sometimes by allusion. And it forces you to accept uh, its assumptions, uh, the world in which it lives, what you see and hear, because it's not someone lecturing to you. It's not someone presenting to you rules and principles and corollaries and definitions and proofs. You actually are standing in that building and you're involved, you're drawn in. Among the many techniques which uh, the uh, Torah uses to bring you in, uh, two are apparent in the very few words with which it begins. And those are interpretive ambiguity, where it intentionally presents something that forces you to interpret it. And what I call split-screen presentation, where two opposing uh, 
concepts are presenting together as if they are the same. That forces you to reconcile, to choose or to negate. So let's plunge right into that. The first words, you do not need to know Hebrew to follow this. I'll try to make it simple and straightforward, but it would help. But let's begin with the words Bareshiz Bora, usually translated, at least in the popular imagination, as in the beginning God created. I'm going to present to you the fact that there is a deliberate interpretive ambiguity here. That there's something not right to a reader of Biblical Hebrew, to a native speaker of Biblical Hebrew, whom of course we no longer have amongst us. There's something not right with the structure, there's something not right with the syntax, and there's something just not right about the grammar. What I'm going to argue is that there is interpretive ambiguity and there is a split-screen presentation. At the same time that you have to get involved with the grammar, get involved with the interpretation, you also become aware that you are seeing two different pictures. Um, I'll give you an example what I mean by that. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein was a famed uh, Soviet filmmaker, uh, Jewish and ultimately persecuted for it, who lived from 1898 to 1948. His two greatest movies, two of his greatest movies, were Battleship Potemkin in 1925 and Alexander Nevsky. Uh, Battleship Potemkin was named in the Brussels 1956 World Fair as the greatest movie of all times. A technique that is used by this uh, famed uh, filmmaker is uh, displaying two events at the same time, what we might call a split-screen presentation. It's a part of the whole what's called montage approach of Soviet cinema, uh, whereas Western cinema at that time was focusing on individual reactions, study of the faces, emotions, and uh, telling a story um, of individuals. In collectivist Russia, that was not permitted. Things had to be presented as great masses of humanity, striving and reaching for something. So Soviet Cinema developed quite different techniques. Of course, now it is a heritage of all movie makers, but Eisenstein, uh, Eisenstein um, used split screen to great effect. So, for example, in Battleship Potemkin, you had one side of the screen showing a mass of humanities uh, downtrodden, storming the Kremlin, and on the other side of the screen, you had a guard who was faintly 
vainly trying to stop them and getting submerged in this forward rush. So what I would uh, contend with and, and present to you is that the very first words of the in the beginning story present to you two different explanations of creation. One, creation from nothing. God spoke, there was nothing, and out came something. Uh, in Latin, we would call it creatio ex nihilo, or in Hebrew, yesh, something mein, from nothing. At the same time, it presents to you a view that there was no creation from nothing, but there was a shaping of pre-existing matter. Some kind of matter uh, existed before, perhaps different from the matter we're most familiar with. And then it was shaped and given a form. And that, that became the world we know. Now, let's talk about the two words, Baratius Barat. Three points that I would like to make here. One is... The word in the beginning is a part of our joint cultural heritage. Everybody knows that that's how the Bible begins. But in fact, it's not quite so. First of all, the very first word, barishis, is composed of three parts. There's a b, which means in, or with. There is reish, which means a head. So in the head. And then there is a is, which is a uh, possessive. Now, in Indo-European languages, many languages, including English, there is something called genitive. Genitive is changing the ending of the word in such a way as to indicate possession. For example, you might say, men's mantle. The S, apostrophe S, changes the word men to indicate a genitive uh, tense. I'm sorry, tense is a conjunction. And it says that the man is the owner of the mantle. In Hebrew, I have something different with the distinction that it's the mantle that changes. And it doesn't change the ending, it changes the vowels. It's uh, a different perception in terms of the relationship of the owner and the possession. Uh, for example, you would say uh, the word ketonet would mean mantle. It would shorten and change its syllables and it will become ketonet-ish, the mantle of a man. So the is or eaten Safari pronunciation at the end of the word bareshit indicates possessiveness, meaning this is the item possessed by, and we don't find by who. There is a lacuna, there is a parenthesis which is not filled. So basically, what it says is, aside from having an extra in, it says, in the beginning of. What? Doesn't say. So again, to review, the word itself has three deficiencies. It 
has a preposition in, which is not necessary. That's not something I say. It's Ibn Janach, a famed grammarian in early medieval Spain, that says so in his book of verbs, which lists all the uh, roots of Hebrew verbs, the first work to have done so. He says that the base, the in, of the beginning is not necessary. Of course, of course, of course you could homiletically interpret it in many ways you can, but on a very simple level of the language, not necessary. Then there is the word itself, which has something to do with the head. There are other words in Hebrew to indicate beginning. And then there is of, and it doesn't serve what. Now, um, the translation in the beginning that we're familiar with is really a misunderstanding of the relationship of Indo-European languages and Hebrew language. In Indo-European languages, the word beginning is a noun. In Hebrew, and this goes to topic we'll pick up another time, the difference between Greek and Hebraic thinking and logic. In Hebrew, the beginning is more like a gerund, like a process in English. So it always must have a connection to what? Beginning of this or beginning of that. Uh, now, I, I should say for fairness that uh, there is at least one other uh, use of the word beginning, not this word, but a similar word in Hosea. Second verse in Hosea says, Tilas Tiber Hashem Hashem. The beginning of God speaking to Hosea. So, like there, the beginning, albeit a different word to the beginning, is, is, is followed by a verb, and you can kind of interpret the verb as being more of uh, a noun, the beginning of God speaking to Hosea. Same thing here, you can interpret uh, in the beginning of creating. That's in fact how uh, Rashi of Shlomo Yitzchaki, the, the preeminent uh, commentator, um, in uh, Jewish interpretation, interprets it. But that's only one other example. You find a couple of other times where uh, the word reishit uh, stands alone. Uh, but in general, the grammar does not favor this interpretation. And finally, the word bara itself. The word bara can mean create or it can mean to fashion, meaning make something out of pre-existent uh, material. Uh, we find in this very story of creation two other verses that use the word bara, and yet they don't mean creation, they mean fashioning. For example, in verse 21, 121, God created great sea monsters. Well, he didn't create them. Everything was already in flux. He made them. He fashioned them out of what was there. Uh, in 127, it says, and God created man. The meaning, obviously, is made man, because he made man from the ground. 
So this is our third indication that the very first three words are presenting the reader with multiple complexities. Again, the grammar of the word in the beginning seems to be missing in the beginning of what? The in, as in in the beginning, which is not necessary, and the word being used, which may mean either creation, creating, or fashioning and shaping the pre-existing matter. Okay, so I hope I've demonstrated that uh, the, the reader immediately is launched into difficulties. Now, on theological grounds, the majority of Jewish interpreters, and this is what we teach children in our schools, uh, understand that there's a creation from nothing. And it's, it's, the meaning is, uh, in the beginning, uh, God made out of nothing heaven and earth, and then we go on. In fact, Maimonides, Rambam, in his Guide of Perplexed, 2.13, says this. There, he lists three opinions about the eternity of the world. The first one, the first opinion, which is the opinion of all who believe in the law of Moses, our master, peace be upon him, is that the world as a whole, I mean to say every existence other than God, was brought into existence by God after having been purely and absolutely non-existent. And that God, may he be exalted, had existed alone and nothing else. Neither an angel, nor a sphere, nor what subsists within the sphere. Sphere by sphere he means the world. Afterwards, through his will and his volition, he brought into existence out of nothing all the beings as they are. Time itself being one of the created things. And he goes on to explain in the subsequent chapters how all that works out, what the different views are the view of Aristotle, the view of Plato and Timaeus. However, despite this, there are some indications that Maimonides may have been open to the idea of God fashioning the world out of pre-existing matter. Leo Strauss, uh, the, a, a, a well-known uh, early century philosopher, uh, last century, uh, understood that that was in fact Maimonides' view. This is not our topic here, but I just mentioned it in his commentary on the Mishnah. Uh, Maimonides did not list the belief in creation out of nothing as one of the principles of faith. And Strauss generally believes, and it's supported by Maimonides' introduction to the guide, that uh, his method here was, in some ways, like the Hebrew Bible, uh, presenting disparate views and inviting the reader to decide which one was truly Maimonides' view. Uh, there are others who disagree with this methodological approach to understanding his writings, and that's another story. However, there are several other commentators who also 
believed that the first verse in Genesis is most compatible with formation and shaping and fashioning of pre-existing matter. They include the Kuzari, Rabbi Uda Levi, a poet and a philosopher, in one part one, uh, subchapter sixty-three to sixty-seven, Gersonides, Bag, in his philosophical work Melchamed Hashem, part six. Uh, Gersonides was a, an astronomer, a rabbinic commentator, uh, a philosopher, and a mathematician. And Ibn Ezra, Avram Ibn Ezra, a poet, and most significantly a commentator, a grammarian, who lived in Muslim Spain and traveled all around the world. He was an itinerant scholar and he ranged from India as far up north as London. He says so pretty clearly in his comments on this verse. Now, we have now between us two different interpretation of the verse. And as I said, they are inherent in the complexity and the uh, deliberate ambiguity of this verse. Let's just think for a second, what might be theological advantages and disadvantages of each, each one of these approaches? So let's say creation from nothing. What's the plus? What's the minus? The plus is, theologically, is that God is above nature. If he made nature, he's not bound by any of its rules. He's totally and completely other and different. Not in any way physical, not in any way material, not in any way subject to natural law. This is important because the Hebrew Bible was the first one who said this. Uh, pagan entities were all a part of the world. They lived in it, they were motivated by, by uh, the same motivations as human beings, and they were susceptible to all of their failings and positive features. On the other hand, a God who is completely above nature is very distant from us. He is difficult to have a relationship with. He's so utterly and completely removed and transcendent that uh, it's hard for a person of piety and religious conviction to experience emotions like love and awe and fear and interest. And this can lead to approaches such as deism, in other words, that they were popular, especially in the 18th and 19th century, that God, of course, made the world. But he wound up the clock and then left. Uh, he made the rules of nature. It's all working. He's out of the picture. He has no connection to us and no claims upon us. Now, that is not the failing of the belief that God is a part of nature, that he made the world 
from pre-existing matter. That makes them much more like us and much closer to us. Now, having a relationship doesn't seem so daunting and so difficult. On the other hand, obviously then is not as omnipotent and not as omniscient and not as transcendent. He is what they call immanent. He is present here with us, but not so transcendent. That is a negative feature of the theology that sees the world as fashioning matter. So what is it that the Bible wants us to choose here? Which one of the two possibilities? So it, it, it seems uh, to me that it deliberately chooses a, may I say, confused or better to say ambiguous presentation that does not fit the laws of grammar and violates certain uh, ideas about precedence and consequence in order that we should consider both and we should come to some conclusions such as this. God is above nature, but he is also with us in this lowly world of physicality, uh, cause and effect, and natural law. He is both omniscient, omnipotent, and not subject to nature, and he is close to us whenever we call upon him. The point uh, is that it is better for religious life for men to see God as being close and not distant. At the same time, seeing him as very close and very much like us brings us toward idolatry. Judaism and Christianity solve this problem in different ways. Judaism said, as the Jerusalem Talmud says in uh, Tractage Column 5, the world is like a narrow bridge. To the right, there is fire. To the left, there is ice. If you veer towards the right, you will burn. If you veer towards the left, you will freeze. What should one do? Walk in the middle. We have to affirm both of these truths and navigate between them. God is transcendent, and yet he is imminent and very close to us. Uh, the point is made by James Kugel in the book called God of Old. Uh, James Kugel is a scholar who has written many provocative books. Uh, I'm not so... Uh, pleased with some of his later books, but I think some of his earlier books are right on target. And he makes a point that, especially in early works of the Bible, God is somebody who lives with us in this world. He appears to us. He appears as a surprise. It's sort of like the boundaries of reality are torn apart and God is right there, sometimes even as an angel or in some kind of vision or representation, which he can be clearly seen, and we can talk to him. The Bible definitely wants us to think of God as being present with us in our travails, in our triumphs, and then he wants things, and he will eventually give us his law. So he's very interested in us personally and as individuals.
I think that's what the Torah wants us to carry out of this first verse. Let's do an exercise. I want to show to you how the second verse comes back and reorients our perception of the first. So to do that, I'm going to read it verse 1 and 2 together, and then 3, and I will then read verse 1 and 3, and then you'll see what it is that verse 2 does. Okay, version number 1. In the beginning God created heaven and earth, and the earth was shapeless and unformed, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and a wind from God sweeping over the water. I'm using the Eitzchayim translation. God says, let there be light, and there was light. So what did you have here? God made heaven and earth, and then he's right here with us in the midst of darkness, in the midst of unshaped world, and then he's working, he's making things, he's shaping them. That is God as an imminent being. Now, what would have happened if we did not have this verse? So let me just read it. In the beginning, God made heaven and earth, and God said, let there be light. Oh, a different perception. God is creating the light. God is not only shaping the light uh, out of what's already there. It becomes a totally different story. To review, using some of the concepts laid out in the introduction, we show how the very first verse sets up two alternative understandings of what it is that God did when he made the world. Creation out of nothing, or shaping of primordial, eternal, matter that was already there, or some uh, ancestor of it, we see how we are led to a certain conclusion by the second verse, and what it is and for what reason that the Bible wants us to incorporate and uh, create a comprehensive, complex, and nevertheless profoundly theologically satisfying understanding and picture. So thank you, friends and colleagues, and uh, we will move on at the next uh, podcast. Thank you for your attention, and may you have only blessing and good in your life.